If you've got a Bible, open to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, it'll be on the screen for you. If you don't have a phone, a tablet, a, a Bible in your hand, something to follow along with, you can follow along on the screens we read together in 1 Corinthians 15. We'll begin in verse 1 and read quite a lengthy text down through verse 26 and come back and, and unpack it together. Here we go. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 1. Paul writes these words. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I have delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep." Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own own order. Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This is God's word. I don't know how you got here this morning. We canvassed and blanketed neighborhoods across our community over the course of the last week. Um, There are some of you in the room this morning who are members here at Redeemer and you've uh, served here, you attend, you worship here with us, you're connected in life groups here, Uh, your your kids are in kids ministry week in and week out. Uh, There are others of you who may have gotten a little door hanger on your door over the course of the last seven days and you're like, we don't have anywhere else to go on Easter Sunday, so let's go there. And you showed up here this morning and walked through the door. Your kids got checked in. Some of you might have received an invite card, a little square card from a neighbor or a coworker or a friend. Others of you, others of you might be here this morning because you're trying to avoid traffic somewhere else, right? I get that. We're glad you're here, all right? Um, but w- w- whatever the reason you're here this morning um, or how you got here, I want to share with you why we are here. 
We're here to celebrate the good news that Jesus, the very Son of God, has come to live in our place. He's come to die in our place. God has, by his power, spoken and raised him from the grave, and now he has risen and ascended, and he's returning to rule and reign one day. That is the good news of the gospel. That's why we're here every Easter and the other 40 or or 51 weeks out of the year. My math was off a little bit there. The other 51 weeks of the year as well. We're here to celebrate the risen Christ. And listen, that's what Easter is about. Easter, my my, my kids love Easter because they love hunting for eggs in the yard or in the field across the street. They love Easter because they love getting those little one-eyed chocolate bunnies, little squirrely looking dudes, right? It's like, they look like they have jaundice because their eyes all yellow. I don't know who wants to eat a jaundice bunny, but for whatever reason I did as a child and so do my kids, right? That's not what Easter's about though. It's not about bunnies laying eggs filled with cream that you can then eat and enjoy like Cadbury coming off the shelves. Right? All those things are great. Diabetic comas, they're, they're okay, right? Every once in a while, right? But that's not what Easter is about. Easter is about the celebration of good news. Good news, And that's what Paul draws our attention to here in the text. And that's what I want to share with you this morning, the good news of Easter. And here, I want to drill this down deep in your minds and hearts, because if you miss this, you're going to miss the very heart of Christianity. I want you to see what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 3. He calls our attention to the gospel. And he says, the gospel is good news. It is not good advice. There's a difference between those two things, a huge monumental difference between good news and good advice. And Paul draws our attention to news, not advice. See, when you think about the difference between news and advice, news or or advice is something that you are, it's information that you're given about something that now you must do, right? So you're given advice on how to plant a garden. You're given advice on how to raise children. You're given advice on how to right, land a job, fill up, form a resume, all those kinds of things. You get advice on it's counsel, it's information you receive about things that you must now do. But news is different than that. News is information about something that has been or will be done. It's not dependent upon you. It's something that's happened apart from you. So advice is something that you receive, that you heed, right? You talk about heeding someone's advice or putting advice into practice, right? Or following through on that advice. But news is something that you receive. News is something that is declared. News is something that gets reported. Let me try and break it down for you this way, right? I I can remember when my wife and I were expecting our first child. Um, and I, I can remember she took the little home pregnancy test and it had, you know, I don't remember what it was. It was like a pink craw plus or blue minus or like some kind of you know, like rectangular triangle shape. I, I don't remember what it was, right? Some isosceles triangle in there. Uh, but it, it indicated that she was pregnant. So we went to the doctor and as we went to the physician, right, he pulls out the magic sonogram wand and he begins to scrut some gel on my wife's stomach and he rubs the wand over her belly and lo and behold, there is life growing in the womb. And you can see that little heartbeat. Those of your parents, you remember that, right? You see that little heartbeat just racing like 90 miles a minute, right? Because their hearts are just pumping so fast in the womb there. And I can remember watching in awe on the screen as I saw this life growing in my wife's womb. And we left that doctor's office and this was our, our, my wife's, our, our second pregnancy, our f- first child, uh, she had a miscarriage early on, but this second pregnancy, so we, so we waited a little while before we began to tell everyone. But then we began to tell everyone, we like called our parents and we shared what the news with them. 
We, then we you know, sent out text messages to our friends and emails and we sat down face to face with coffees and lunches and we celebrated the news. We reported that news to them. We shared with them what had happened and what we were looking forward to happening, this life that was now entering into the world. That is news. But at every couple shower, you get advice, don't you? You show up at a couple shower and there's advice that they share with you. It's not news, you're, you're sharing news with them, but they're giving you advice. And one of the pieces of advice I wish I'd had gotten at one of those couple showers was this, is that when it comes time to change the diaper genie for the first time, like don't change that dude in a confined space, <laughs> right? Because you've got like a week of fermentation happening there within that bag. And I remember the first time I changed it, I was in a very confined space. I was in my son's room and I pulled that seal, right? Oh yeah, pull the seal off, the gasket comes loose, and all of a sudden, all the glory of the last week wafts into the room. It about knocked me down. It took me a week to recover from it, right? I still have a little bit of twitch every once in a while because the smell was so strong and potent, right? I wish somebody would have told me, given me that advice, don't open that in a confined space, right? A birth announcement is news. Don't open the diaper genie in a confined space is advice. Advice is something that you must do. News is something that has been done. And whenever Paul says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, the word gospel literally in the text literally means good news, that there's something to be reported, something I want to remind you of. And then Paul goes further down in the text to give us what this news is. And the first thing that he says is this. He says the news is this, that Christ died in verse 3 for our sins. That's the very first piece of news that Paul delivers in verse 3. The gospel, Christ died for our sins. You see, if you read the gospel accounts following Jesus' life and ministry and the passion narratives, he withdraws into Gethsemane, the garden, and he gets on his knees to pray. And he's sweating drops of blood because he knows what lies on the horizon for him is the cup that he has to drink of God's wrath against sin, of God's just anger and judgment against sin. And he's pleading with the Father, if there's any other way, would you take this cup from me? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. And Jesus submits, and as he submits, he rises to his feet, he walks out to find all of his friends asleep. He causes them to, he says, rise up, could you not stay awake with me and pray for just a short time? He says, look, and the Roman troops and the Jewish leaders are coming now to arrest him, and they show up, and they arrest Jesus, and they bring him before a bunch of clown courts in his day, and they unjustly try him and convict him. First he goes before the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish high council. And they find him guilty of the charge of blasphemy, but they don't have the authority under Roman jurisdiction to condemn him to death. So they send him on to Pilate, and Pilate, first of all, wants to wash his hands of Jesus. He says, I don't want anything to do with this. So he sends him to another guy, Herod. Herod kind of slaps Jesus around a little bit, mocks, scorns him, and ridicules him, sends him back to Pilate, and Pilate finally realizes, I'm gonna have to do something about this. And so he sets Jesus and a guy named Barabbas before the crowds that were gathered there in Jerusalem. And he says, it's our custom to release one prisoner to you who do you want your king who the one who claims to be your king Jesus or this known murderer Barabbas and the crowd cries out release Barabbas crucify Jesus and so Pilate takes Jesus and he flogs him and he sends him to be crucified on top of Calvary's hill and as Jesus is his nail his hands and feet are nailed to the cross and as he breathes his last and he cries out, it is finished. One of the Roman centurions takes a 
spear and he drives it through his side into his heart and outruns the blood and the water that Jesus literally physically dies. And the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the reason that Jesus is crucified is for our sins. Now, when many of us think of sin, we think of our actions, the things that we do, don't we? We think of all those bad things we try and teach our kids not to do and all the, right, the opposite of that is all the good things we try and teach our kids to do, right? We typically think in terms of actions, but in the Bible, sin goes a lot deeper than your actions. In fact, in the Bible, sin has a root in our, what we might say is our disposition, our dispositions, right? Our attitudes. If you're parents, you know this, don't you? You see your kids, right? You see them maybe doing the right thing, but they're like grumbling and complaining. They don't wanna do it. Their attitude like smells like that diaper genie bag, okay? Right, you see that. It's not just about your actions, it's about your disposition. And in the Bible, this is what sin is in the Bible. Sin is a disposition of distrust towards God that I believe that I can rule and run my life for myself. You saw it in the garden with our first parents that they wanted to be like God whenever Eve took of the fruit and ate and gave some to her husband, right? Sin essentially is this, it's a disposition of distrust towards God that flows downstream into our life into all kinds of actions. Sin essentially is mutiny against God, right? Before you could fly from continent to continent, you had to sail. I don't think any of us were alive during those days, but if you were, you couldn't just go to buy a ticket and get on a plane and fly from one continent to another. You had to get on, go to a port and go on a dock and board a ship with a captain who was gonna take you from one port to the next. And over the course of the, that journey, if the crew began to distrust the captain, if they began to distrust the, the, chart, the, the course that he had charted, the direction he had determined, they would at times rise up and they would commit mutiny. They would try and dethrone the captain. They would take the will into their own hands and say, we're gonna chart our own course. We're gonna determine our own direction because we know better. And that's essentially what sin is, is when we try to take the wheel into our own hands and say, God, I can run and rule my life for myself. I don't need you. I don't need you. And that disposition fleshes itself out in at least two ways because most of us, when we think of sin, we think of all the bad things that we might do. But you know in the Bible, particularly in Jesus' life and ministry, oftentimes he's not only, he's, he's not necessarily, he doesn't have his harshest words for the people who were doing all the bad things. He has his harshest words for the people who were doing all the good things. All the, all, they were keeping all the law because there's two ways to commit mutiny against God. There's two ways to take the wheel into your own hands and one is through unrighteous living, right? It's through trying to break free from God's thumb being on you. I don't wanna live under his authority. I don't wanna submit to his rule. I don't, want to, I don't, I don't, I don't wanna come underneath his reign in my life and so I wanna define good and evil for myself. I want to define what's right and wrong in my own eyes and I wanna be able to pursue that path by, for, for, for myself. But the other way that we can commit mutiny against God is not through unrighteous living, but through self-righteous living. See, because those who are living self-righteously committing mutiny against God, they still want control of their lives. They wanna make God their debtor by all the good things that they do. So that God owes them something. In Luke chapter 15, there's a story of two brothers who have one father. And one of the brothers comes, the younger one comes to the father and says, Father, give me my inheritance. Now, before you, I wish you were dead. That's basically what he was saying in that culture. I wish you were dead. I want my inheritance from you. And he wanders off and he squanders all of his wealth in wild living in a foreign land. The other brother stays very close to home, very, very close to the father. And yet you can see by the end of the story that his heart was far from him because when the younger son 
spends all of his money and he's broken down and eating with the pigs because he had squandered his wealth in wild living, right? Defining good and evil for himself. He realizes that the hired hands in his father's house, they had better food and supplies and better provisions than even he did. And so he comes to his senses and he comes back to his father, throws himself at his mercy upon his feet. And the father receives him back, puts a robe on him and a ring on his finger, slaughters the fattened calf, throws a massive party to celebrate the fact that this son of his who was lost is now found, who was dead is now alive, who had wandered away is now returned home. But the older brother, the older brother still out in the fields, He will not come in and celebrate. And the father goes out graciously and lovingly to entreat him to come in. And the older brother says, I've been here working my fingers to the bone for you all of my life and yet you've never even given me a young goat to celebrate with my friends. Do you see they were both trying to control their own lives? One was trying to define good and evil for themselves and one was trying to make the father their debtor that the father would owe them something. Both are mutinous in the eyes of God. Both are attempts to control for ourselves, run and rule our own lives, either by being very, very, very bad or by being very, very, very good and not needing God. But back in the day, if you were to travel from continent to continent, the, 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 the judgment of a failed mutiny was what? You guys have seen Pirates of the Caribbean, right? What was it, right? You walk the plank, okay? They stick a board off the end of the ship and you had to walk that sucker and you would drown, right? You, you would, you would, you would you'd be condemned to a watery grave. And the Bible says the same is true for you and I. Those of us, whether it be through our unrighteous living or our self-righteous living, through saying we're gonna define good and evil for ourselves, we're gonna make God our debtor. We're gonna be very bad or very good, but somehow control our lives. The judgment for all of us, the Bible says, is death. In Romans 3.23, we're told all have sinned. Everyone has this mutinous disposition and distrust towards God and wants to rule and run their own lives. And that we fall short of God's glory and we're condemned to death. But in that very same text, we're told that what God has done in his grace and in his love is that he's put Jesus forward. And he uses a big 25 cent theological term, right? Called propitiation. And what that word means is this, is that when he put Jesus forward, he put Jesus forward to take the wrath of God for us and to turn the wrath of God from us. That Jesus dying in our place does both of those things, that he incurs our penalty. I tell my kids all the time that Jesus took their whooping, right? He took their punishment in their place and in my place, what I deserve, so that I wouldn't know the anger of God's wrath and judgment against me, but I would know his grace and love and the compassion of a father that is poured out and lavished upon his children. That's good news. Do you know that? That's good news. That's not advice. That's not me saying you go do these three things and jump through these hoops and then God will accept you. It's saying that God has accepted you on the basis not of what you will do, but on what Jesus has done. That is good news. But he doesn't stop there. Because Paul goes on to say not only did Jesus die for our sins, but he says in verse four and again in verse 20 that Christ has risen from the grave that he was raised according to the scriptures and that Christ has been raised again, he says in verse 20. See, Jesus really died. Whenever they ran that spear through his heart, he really died. The blood and the water ran out. He breathed his last breath. Physically, he was dead. 
But Jesus was a homeless dude. He wandered around as a teaching rabbi, had no place to lay his head, so he didn't have a tomb for himself. And so this really wealthy individual who was a secret follower of Jesus gave up his tomb and they laid him in it. They rolled a stone over it. And as they rolled that stone over it, the light was dismissed. And he lay there in the tomb for three days. He was anointed with all kinds of spices and perfumes to deter the decay and the scent and the stench of the flesh as it rotted in the tomb. But on the third day, whenever the women showed up at the tomb in the gospel accounts, they find that the stone had been rolled away and that Jesus was no longer there and that his grave clothes had been folded up and they were left there nice and neat. That Jesus had risen. Now listen, I want you to hear something this morning. The historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is so compelling, so compelling that there have been multiple attempts to author other of what happened there in the tomb that Sunday morning. Because when you look at the historical account, they go, something happened, we're not sure what it was. If we're not gonna accept face value that Jesus was raised from the grave, we gotta figure out some alternate explanation, some other story. And there have been people who have tried in multiple ways. Some have said this, some have said that what happened there in the tomb was that that, that when the women showed up, they were overcome with emotion, right? Because, I didn't say it, They said it, the ladies were a little bit overly emotional and so they showed up at the tomb and they showed up at the wrong grave because their judgment was clouded. They couldn't remember exactly where they laid him so they come to the wrong tomb. But listen, if that had been the case, don't you think that when subsequent visitors or after their emotion had kind of subsided or whenever the the, the folks who came and string and trails of visitors to see the fact that the tomb was empty, they would have shown up and been like, no, that's not where we put him, we put him over there. Don't you think somebody would have said that's not the right grave, that's not where they laid him or the authorities would have come along who were trying to squash the movement of Christianity and they'd have said that's not where you guys buried him, you buried him over here, look, this tomb, there's his body. Doesn't hold up. In addition, some some, some have said that Jesus, well he didn't really die on the cross. He just appeared, he kind of like faked it. You know, he just appeared to be dead hanging there with his myocardial sac punctured and blood and water running all over the ground. He just appeared to be dead. But if that had been the case, don't you think, don't you think that this man who had been beaten, had strips of flesh ripped from his back, a crown of thorns piercing his brow, had his myocardial sac punctured with a spear, right? So even if he had just pretended, right, he rolled over like a dog in the backyard and just kind of played dead there, that he would have the energy or strength to roll the stone away from the tomb, climb out or crawl out, and that somebody would have seen him in that condition or that state because he would have had to have sought medical attention, at least the best medical attention in his day. And that he would not have looked like the, the risen, ascended, glorified Jesus. He would have looked like a beaten, bloodied criminal. That, that doesn't inspire worship. Third, some have said that the disciples took the body, but if that had been the case, don't you think that whenever the the persecution began to rise, hostility and hatred began to set in, that they would have said, you know what, man, we were just playing, (laughs) right? Whenever they started being crucified and they started being burned alive and they started being fed to the lions and they they, they were being chased from town to town, they'd have been like, man, we were, it was just a, it was just a joke, man. I, I, I don't think they would have kept up the hoax whenever it began to cost them so deeply. Others have said the authorities came in and took the body because they didn't want a shrine for people to continue to visit year after year after year after year. 
But if that had been the case in Christianity, the groundswell movement as it began to grow so rapidly and expansively and powerfully across the Mediterranean region, don't you think the authorities would have said, hey, we've got him, he's not alive. That would have been the quickest way to squash this worship of the risen and ascended Jesus. So something happened there in the tomb that Sunday morning that has to be accounted for. And the most logical explanation is the one the scriptures record for us, that Jesus is not in the tomb, but he's at the right hand of the Father waiting to return. And that's the third piece of news Paul gives us in this text. He says that not only has Jesus died for our sins, not only has risen from the grave, but that he's returning to reign. He's returning to rule. He says one day he's coming back and he's gonna put all of his enemies under his feet and he's gonna rule and he's gonna reign until all of his enemies are destroyed. The last enemy to be destroyed, he says, is death. That he will put an end to it. In fact, you drop down further in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and this is what he says in verses 54 and following. He says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Where is it? Look, yesterday my daughter was playing outside in our backyard and she was running around having a good time and then as, as happens frequently this time of the year, some red wasps began to buzz around the top of the playset. And so she catches them out of the corner of her eye and she makes a beeline screaming and crying for the back door, right? She'd been stung by a wasp a couple of weeks ago. And she doesn't want any part of that, which I don't blame her, right? It burns, it feels like your arm is on fire, right? And so she makes a beeline for the door because she doesn't wanna be stung. And Paul says, death, where is your sting? Do you know that a wasp or a hornet, no matter how big it is, it can buzz around your head and sound like a helicopter, but if it has no stinger, it it can't harm you? It can't ultimately hurt you? It can't. And Paul says, death, where is your sting? Not because Jesus came with a pair of tweezers and plucked out the stinger, but because Jesus was stung by it himself. He was stung in our place. He was stung for us. So there is no more stinger on death. It can threaten us, it can stand over us. And when you stand at a casket today for a loved one or a family member or a friend and you lay them in the ground, right, death, It seems that death has won. It seems that death is at the final word, but the Easter tells us it hasn't. Because it's only a stingerless hornet or a stingerless wasp that's buzzing around your head, threatening to do you in, but it can do you no ultimate harm. That is good news, isn't it? That's good news. Now, in in the time that we have remaining, here's what I wanna do. I wanna press this and show you the difference news makes in your life. Because news makes a difference, doesn't it? Right? If you're watching the, Saturday, uh, the, 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 the Sunday evening news this afternoon or you're watching the Monday evening news tomorrow night, when you see reports come across the channel, it makes a difference for you. And I want to share with you several differences this news will make for you. And the first one is this, is that if, if Christianity, if the heart of Christianity is about news and not advice, then it's only in the gospel that you can find rest. It's only in the gospel that you can find rest. See, all of us in this room, we're living out of one of two foundations. We're either trying to achieve an identity for ourselves or we're receiving an identity from someone else, 
right? We're either trying to achieve an identity by all of our accomplishments, all of our accolades, all of our awards, all of our achievements. We're trying to achieve, we're trying to make ourselves look like something or someone. We've got a picture in our minds of how we want to be perceived by people. And so we're trying to achieve an identity. And there are some people who are trying to achieve an identity because they want people to see them as those who are powerful and prestigious. They want people to see them as those who are wealthy and wise. They want others to see them as individuals who are assertive and attractive. They long to be seen as pretty or handsome or attractive. So they spend all kinds of time on their body and their physical appearance. Or they spend all kinds of time purchasing possessions and acquiring wealth because they want to be seen as someone who has it all together, who has everything life has to offer. So they're building an identity, trying to achieve an identity for themselves. And do you know that the longer that you try and achieve an identity for yourself, the more weary you will become? Because there is no rest. Because once you achieve that identity, now you have to maintain that identity. And there is no deep rest for you. But the gospel says that you don't have to achieve an identity, but you can receive one. You can receive one on account of what Jesus has done, not on account of what you will do. That you can receive an identity that would set you free from all these endless pursuits and quests of trying to be wise and wealthy, popular and prestigious, powerful, attractive, assertive. All those things that you've been trying to set forth for the world to see and other people to see can now come crashing down and you don't have to live to prove yourself to anyone or anything any longer. You can rest. For some of you, that's good news because you're tired. You've been living life as a series of proofs, trying to prove yourself to everyone around you. Trying to prove who you are and achieve an identity. And Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, who've been trying to, by their own efforts and by their own abilities, work and do and accomplish and achieve. And he says, you will find rest here and only here. Because every other, listen, one of the things you can do with news, you can either receive it or you can reject it, right? You can say it's fake news or you can say it's real news. (laughs) You can dismiss it and ignore it or you can build your life around it. And if you dismiss it and you ignore it, if you change the channels, every other channel that you change to will be a self-help infomercial that says you can achieve your identity through these means or measures. Only Jesus says, I will give you an identity you don't have to achieve. You can just receive it and rest in it. That's That's the difference news makes in your life. So you don't have to live to prove yourself to anyone else any longer. And some of you are like, well, I'm not, I'm not. I'm not living to prove myself anymore. I don't live to prove myself to anyone, but you're living to prove to other people that you don't live to prove yourself to anyone. (laughs) And that's why you're running in circles. Only in the gospel can you find rest. But secondly, only in the gospel can you find forgiveness. Paul says Christ died for our sins While Jesus is hanging on the cross, the sky turns black. And whenever he breathes his last breath, the Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 27 that God tears the curtain in the temple that separated his presence from the people. Signifying that now, 
because of Jesus' work for us that we are able to come into the very presence of God, have intimacy with God, enjoy God, not because of what we've done, but because of what he has done, not because of the advice that we have followed, but because of the news that we've received. That we can be forgiven. That we don't have to carry around guilt and shame any longer. Some of us carry incredibly heavy bags of shame in our lives or incredibly heavy bags of guilt in our lives. In fact, that's why some of us don't even come to church but once a year. Because we're like, man, I feel so guilty. I feel so ashamed when I show up. A part of the reason that you feel that way is because you've been operating trying to achieve an identity as opposed to receiving one. Part of the reason you feel so much guilt and shame is because you've never known what it is to be forgiven. You've never known what it is to have Jesus stamp across the folder and file of your life done. And you've been trying to do. And you've been trying to do and do and do all of your life. Never knowing the forgiveness, never knowing the very presence of God, intimacy with God, of laying down all your efforts and receiving Jesus' work in your place so that you would not carry shame and you would not carry guilt of your past any longer or of your present right now. Only in the gospel can you find forgiveness. Third, only in the gospel can you find freedom. Paul says that Christ has raised from the grave and that Brian read for us earlier in our time of worship through song. He read Romans chapter six and he that speaks of where Paul talks about us being buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. Us considering ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. See, because Jesus not only died in our place, but because he's raised from the grave, the very Holy Spirit of God, the very power of God moves and invades our lives and begins to empower us to say, no, consider ourselves dead to all of our past patterns of behavior. All the things that once characterized us no longer have to define our lives any longer. But because Jesus is raised, we can say no to all of our idolatry and false worship and yes to the worship of the true God. Because Jesus has been raised, we can say no to all of our covetousness and say yes to contentment. Covetousness has destroyed lives. We can say no to our greed and yes to generosity. We can say no to lust and yes to love. We can say to true love. We can say no to all of our bitterness and anger and say yes to forgiveness and grace. We can say no to all of our self-madeness and our autonomy and our independence and say yes to humility, recognizing that we are not the ones who are putting our lives together, but he is the one who's ruling and reigning over us. See, because Jesus is raised, we can say no. We can say no to sin and yes to God. That's good news. And finally, because Jesus has, will return to reign. See, only in the gospel can we find hope. Only there can you find hope. And some of you right now may be in the midst of very hopeless situations. And you're living day to day in despair. Some of you have been wounded deeply in the past by other people. Some of you have been wounded deeply in the past by other churches. 
And I, I, here's what I'm not here to sell you this morning. I'm not here to sell you that if you would turn to Jesus, he's gonna fix all your problems right here, right now, today on the spot. And you're gonna walk out of that door with like, and the birds are gonna sing perpetually in your yard, right? Your grass is always gonna be green, right? Your flowers are always gonna be blooming, even in the dead of winter, right? I'm not here to sell you that this morning. What I am here to tell you is this, is that there's a day that's coming in which it will be true. All those things will be true. Every single one of them. There's a day that is coming because Christ is returning to reign in which all of the brokenness of your life will be redeemed for beauty. There's a day that's coming in which all the ashes of your life will be put back together and beautiful testimony to the grace and glory of God. There's a day that's coming in which all of your disappointment, all of the opposition that you have faced, all of your sin that you've, the, the thing that you have caused in your own life, the consequences of your sin, in which they will be erased, in which you will live forever. We said last week with a never ending happy ending. It's coming, it's on the horizon one day because Christ will defeat and vanquish all of his enemies. He will even put his foot on the throat of death and suffocate it forever. Death will die. That day's coming. See, listen, that's one of the reasons that we are so infatuated with fairy tales. Do you know this? I said this last week. If you were here, you remember it. If not, you get it this week. But one of the reasons we're so infatuated with fairy tales is because they all come to a moment in which the people ride off into the sunset living happily ever after, right? The reason that we're infatuated by beauty and the beast is because we want to believe there is a beauty that can tame the beastliness in every single one of our hearts. And I want you to know there is, and one day it will. One day you'll be free from even the presence of sin. It, will no lo- it no longer can reign over you now and one day it won't even be in your company any longer because he will tame all the beastliness of your life. We wanna believe there is a prince whose kiss could awaken us from this curse and there is. See, we wanna believe that there is a father whose love is so deep and so strong and so mighty. Remember those arm motions, right? We wanna believe there's a father whose love is that strong and that deep that he would one day turn his creations from wooden puppets into real little boys and girls who would lavish in his presence all of eternity. We wanna believe those stories to be true because one day they will be. See, only in the gospel can you find that hope. Everything else will leave you in in your despair. Everything else will leave you in your guilt and your shame. Everything else will leave you in bondage and everything else will leave you do and do and do and do. Only the gospel says you can have rest, you can find forgiveness, you can find freedom and you can have hope. So this morning, here's what I wanna ask you to do as we sing together and celebrate by coming to the Lord's table I wanna ask you to consider where you are. I wanna ask you to consider where you are in relationship to that news. Some of you have rejected that news all of your life and said there's got to be another way because of your pride. Because you have want to try to attempt, you, you, you think you're good enough, smart enough, and doggone it, enough people like you, that God should as well and he would accept you. And you've tried all of your life. 
you rejected that news. I want to invite you this morning to receive it. I want to invite you this morning to, 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 to come to Jesus and allow him to stamp done on the file folder of your life that he has lived in your place, that he has died in your place, that he has been raised from the grave, that he is reigning victoriously and one day will return. So that you would come to God not trusting in your own merits, but you would throw yourself upon his mercy and say, God, would you have mercy on me? Forgive and cleanse me. Set me free from the bondage in which I've been living. I want rest. And I want you to know that if, if that desire is stirring in your heart right now, that he stands ready to receive you. Others of you have forgotten that news. You've forgotten that news. And this morning, maybe God has reawakened it in front of you. And so wherever it is that you've been trying to do life on your own, wherever it is that you've been trying to, to, to cleanse yourself of your guilt and your shame because you've forgotten how good and gracious and glorious God is, I want to invite you to turn from that and remember, remember the one who has saved you. This morning, the band, a couple of our elders are going to come. They can go ahead and come now. They're going to serve the elements to us. The band's going to come and receive that. And they're going to come on stage and they're going to lead us in song. And here's what I want to do. I want to invite you to come and receive the Lord's table with us this morning. If you are a Christian, someone who has repented of their sins and turned to trust in and you treasure Jesus as the greatest prize in your life, that you've crossed the line of faith, that this news has washed over your life, You've been a recipient of God's grace. He's brought you from death to life and he's moved you from despair to hope and from darkness to light. If you are a Christian, I wanna invite you to come, whether you're a member of this church or not, and receive the Lord's table this morning and remember the body of Jesus broken for you and the blood of Jesus that was shed for you. If you're not a Christian, if that is not true about you, you've never crossed the line of faith, I wanna invite you just to witness and watch as we remember the body and blood of Lord that was broken and shed for us. So our elders are going to be here to serve the elements. I'm going to pray for us. I want to invite you to come. Would you pray with me? Father, today, we come before you as not as proud men and women who deserve anything from you, but as humble men and women who know that anything we receive is a gift. Father, I pray that this news of the gospel, I pray that it would shatter. It would shatter all of our religious experiences. Father, all the, 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 the expectations that we had, maybe even walking through these doors this morning, of thinking that somehow we, we were scared to walk in because we didn't think that we would measure up. God, I pray that there are those who are sitting on those feelings this morning, God, I pray that the news of the gospel would set them free. I pray they'd find forgiveness. I pray they'd find hope and healing. And I pray, God, they'd find rest. Father, for those in the room this morning who have forgotten this news, I pray, God, that you remind them of it and that this morning they would rejoice. God, their hearts will be filled with joy because you have said done. 
as we receive the table this morning, Father, may it minister grace to us. In our name we pray, in Jesus' name.